millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Q Commentator Episode 6. How did we get here? Yes, with me, Nick Heath. How are you? Um, I hope you're in rude health as you listen along. Our sixth conversation on commentary. Um, I bet you didn't think it would still be interesting. Some of you might never thought it was interesting at all. Um, But I think it's proved that although it's one particular broadcasting job, the stories and insights from those we've heard of uh, have brought different themes to the fore each time, and that's given each one its own flavour, I think. Uh, Michael Weeduck was one of those who got in touch after Bob Ballard's episode 5 chat, saying via Twitter to at Q Commentator, it's a great series and uh, and listened to it last night. Liked hearing about how the commentator and co-commentator dynamic works in terms of Bob's work on the diving with Leon. Uh, lovely also to have support from the BBC LGBT Sport Bodca- Podcast, Bodcast even, uh, hosted by Jack Murley. Uh, Jack, we will meet for a beer or similar soon, I hope. Uh, also, thanks to Mark Gray for getting in touch as well. Uh, he thought Bob's critique of some commentators on Match of the Day sounding similar was perhaps due to the nature of the short five-minute edits rather than allowing fuller coverage that could allow a bit more variation, which I think is a fair point. Uh, Probably some truth on both sides of that one, I would say. Uh, But plenty of you getting in touch, also having listened to previous episodes as well. Uh, You are not an unwieldy, throbbing, burgeoning audience in terms of numbers, but the several hundred of you that are tuning in with regularity and making me feel so happy that you're getting something out of of these conversations and are coming back for more so thank you from the bottom of my heart it's super to have you with me uh, and hopefully to be bringing you more soon given this is the last episode of series one ah, i hear you all say um but i have saved a good one for you so as ever you can email q commentator at rugbymedia.co.uk you can tweet at q commentator or contact me on at nick heath sport etc etc uh, do leave a rating or even better a review i'll be your best friend if you do that um also some pretty exciting news i'm thrilled to have been asked to be part of podcast live um a rugby special that's taking place at twickenham on saturday the 7th of september check the diaries now while you're listening um it should be a fantastic event Featuring the likes of the Egg Chasers, Brian Moore, Will Greenwood, The Times and uh, and the Ruck Podcast, um, and little old me. Um, but uh, I'm basically planning on having a super guest for a live Q commentator. Um, I'm also hoping to be popping up elsewhere over the course of the day. Uh, so it would be amazing to see you there. Uh, you can book tickets now on podcastlive.com, just 42 quid. Uh, and if you click to say you're coming mainly to see me, then I get a little kickback and I'll promise to give out free sweets at my one. There we go. 
we go. There's a promise that will be kept. Free sweets if you book and say you're coming to see me. Um, it would be great to have you there anyway. Um, it's podcastlive.com for you to get those tickets. Saturday the 7th of September at Twickenham in their lovely New East stand. Uh, come and join Q Commentator and have the chance to see the rest of the guys who are taking part too. So, episode six of Q Commentator, the man who has been the voice of ITV football commentary for a decent number of years now, uh, a man whose commentary I had as a ringtone in 2005, but more on that in a moment. It is, of course, Clive Tildesley, and, well, so far he seems to be a man who was focused and destined to do the job he now does, um, as you'll hear in the start of our chat in a moment, perhaps compared to more of those other people that have sort of come to it via other means. Uh, he spent his time on Match of the Day on the BBC. He's called countless finals in huge club and international football competitions. Um, and in our conversation, we cover the natural textures of the human voice, perhaps where you have the sound of someone's lovely voice versus the content, perhaps, that they're capable of putting in it. Um, the slow onset of talking in metric rather than imperial. Uh, and Clive really talks about a real focus on the importance of knowing your audience, which uh, isn't something we've heard too much about previously. And I think it's it's really relevant where Clive comes from. Um, his mentor uh, in Reg Gutteridge, who we, uh, who we know Bob Ballard name-checked last week, also talking about remaining current and remaining relevant. Uh, we also hear about the songs that Clive played on his late-night rock show, Yes, that was a thing. Um, modern scrutiny, of course, uh, with, with modern social media and the pressures that come with that. Um, and then also quite a big conversation across the sp- the sort of sporting landscape in general about audiences perhaps not being big enough behind the modern paywall culture, the the BT sports and the skies of the world um, and how that is affecting the grassroots of sport and some of our biggest key sports across England and the world. Uh, personally, I think it's an argument that really needs listening to, and Clive puts it across very, very well. Um, and then, uh, perhaps what I can only call uh, as the fanboying, um, at time of publishing, Liverpool have just won their sixth Champions League title. Uh, in 2005, when I was probably in one of my more passionate periods of being a Liverpool fan, uh, I was watching all the games at the local pub, watched the final in Istanbul, of course, memorable because Liverpool were 3-0 down at half-time. Um, Clive Tilsley's commentary, uh, when Steven Gerrard heads the goal in, goes, hello, hello, here we go. Uh, And I had that as a ringtone because I couldn't believe how prophetic that commentary ends up sounding given what then happened in the game, Liverpool scoring another two, going to extra time uh, and winning the game on penalties. And uh, yeah, it's just... It's a magical piece of commentary for me. So I knew that at some point I was going to have to kind of do that moment of going, we're just talking generally about commentary, but tell me everything about that moment and what what you felt, what you did and everything. So um, Clive humours me, I think, is the best way to put it, but does does give us a few little gems uh, of that process. So without further ado, and there's been too many minutes of ado, uh, but uh, thanks for listening. And here, Q commentator, Clive Tilsley. Well, Clive Tilsey, thanks very much for your time. I believe you were mapping out destiny as a football commentator from a young age. Why was that? What were you listening to? What was the appeal? Um, I couldn't play football to any level. I couldn't play anything to any level, really. Um, I was just fascinated for some reason by um, television sport. Um, I suppose that most of the sport we witness is... um, is via a screen of some kind. It was a television. It's often mm-hmm. not now. Um, and even um, 
I, I was brought up in the Manchester area. My dad took me to Old Trafford from quite an early age. Um, and even on the walk back to the car, I would be compiling my 60-second report uh, for sports report. And we'd, we'd get back to the car just in time for the classified reading of the results at, uh, at five o'clock. And then there was, a, there was a guy called Bill Bothwell who was very often the... Uh, the reporter at Old Trafford who who gave his two pennyworth over 60 seconds. And I would be mentally comparing uh, his observations on the match with mine. And this is an alarming age. Were you better than him on occasion? <laughs> Certainly not. Um, I'm still, and I'm still not. Um, but, um, yeah, I, it, it was just a passion. And I, and I knew from an early age it was what I wanted to do. I recall going to see United play at Queen's Park Rangers. I must have been about 15 and um, uh, I actually stood outside the BBC uh, television centre for an hour or so and just watched people going in and out and just wanted to be one of those people. Mm. Um, I just really, really wanted to work in that field, and I knew it. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I have very similar memories of, of seeing things in production or even if I saw a, a film set or you know the film light vans that you'd see down the street. And I'd always – it wasn't about wanting to see anyone famous. It was actually about I want to be part of that. I want, I want to know how that's put together. I want yeah, to. and I was in my final year at university and there was a commercial radio station opening in the city in Nottingham. And um, yeah, how did I get my first job? I just went and made a nuisance of myself, really. It was classic knock on the door um, to, to the point where about two weeks before I took my finals, I got a phone call from the uh, programme controller um, who made out at first that he was going to rebuke me for continually turning up at this building site, really, where there were... Uh, constructing the studios and then uh, said I've decided the only thing I can do to get rid of you is to give you a job and my first question was what <laughs> what degree do I need and his answer was you don't need a degree to make tea <laughs> yeah good excellent yeah because you started there and at Radio Trent and Radio City in Liverpool was anybody at that stage telling you if you were any good um me right. uh, yeah, I, yeah. I think um I think if 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 I'm honest, what's the point of doing the interview if you're not? Uh, I am my own biggest critic. I still, to this day, try to watch back everything that I do and uh, and usually alone, well, always alone, so that I can listen to it and and, and review it critically mm-hmm. and try to learn and improve. But um, I, I suppose we've all got memories of, um, you know, some kind of home movie that you've parents shot and hearing your voice for the first time and thinking that's not my voice oh that sounds awful uh and I had those you know I I went through that phase but I kind of got over that phase and um to the point where this it it, this sounds incredibly vain but I think you do need an element of of vanity self-confidence and so on to progress in this business and I think I probably had that from the start and um I certainly didn't mind the sound of my own voice from the from the time I started working. Yeah, and uh, it's come up in a couple of the other conversations I've had. So for those people who are listening to a series of these conversations, I hope it's not too repetitive. But it's it, it, there's an element of understanding and knowledge of one's own voice if you're going to be broadcasting in it that is absolutely set apart from those people that go, oh, oh, I heard myself on camera. I don't like the sound of that. You might hear it and think, or certainly I would, and just go, 
you know, or not be offended by it, and then certainly to be able to be in touch with your own musicality of your voice. And I and I think there's a I think a musical ear is required. That that's that's come up a few times. Yeah, I think texture of voice is is uh, if if there is a, a rich texture in in a broadcaster's voice, I think it gives them a huge advantage, a huge natural advantage. It's like being. I don't know, tall in a rugby team, or or, yeah. or strong or fast in a rugby team. It it gives you an edge, and if uh, and I, I would never ever review another commentator's work publicly, um, <laughs> but I think there are certain commentators who've actually got by more on the quality of their voice tone than they have on the content of their work. Yeah. I don't think my voice was ever so strong that I that I could could do that so did, I did always, it take you time to find your voice I well I mean I was 21 20 yeah 21 years of age when I first broadcast on Radio Trent uh, uh, I've drunk an awful lot of red wine since then <laughs> <laughs> so obviously my voice has has changed but were you wary of it at the time did did you did you have a sort of you know you said Manchester do you have a did you have no. any form of accent or anything no I I, I think I have um I, I'm a more sort of a traditional Lancashire background, the old Lancashire, North Manchester. I'm from Bury. Um, and uh, after a bottle of red wine, I probably would say Bury rather than yeah, Bury. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I suppose um, the uh, the honesty in my voice comes out, but at, at the time when everybody's honesty, when you're angry or... Uh, and, and, and maybe from time to time, the odd vowel will still slip, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think in actual fact, there's a greater acceptance now and almost uh, an affection for... A lot of regional accents in broadcasting, whereas probably when I first started to work in radio, the you know BBC English was still almost a requirement, mm. and um, and now they uh, want anything but. Well, it would appear so. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, and and I am quite. I, I mean, I think when you get to 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 my stage of my career, um, you, you owe it to yourself and to your public to. Um, continue to review whether you are becoming a grumpy old man uh, and whether you are, you're, you're remaining sufficiently contemporary. Fortunately, uh, we've got four kids in their 20s, so that you know that gives you a touchstone immediately, yeah. uh, which uh, en- enables you to connect with a different generation. But I where, think, where are you on that scale at the minute? Well, I think, I, strangely enough, I think you, you kind of grow back towards your children at, at that sort of age. And as a commentator who is in his 60s, I'm I'm very aware of how I may be perceived, both by audience and potential employers. I don't think there's another television comment, BBC, a, a television football commentator at the at the moment, who is talking in terms of meters as well as yards. Now mm. that is a conscious effort on my part. I don't think in terms of meters, but I have worked out that probably around about half the audience now do. Mm. And so again, in order to serve them. Uh, it, it's like getting a close-up of um, Sir Bobby Charlton at a Manchester United game. It's not sufficient to say it's Sir Bobby Charlton yeah. because there is a vast numbers of people that you're broadcasting to who maybe kind of know the name but don't really know who he is or, yeah. or why he's important and significant. So, again, never, never assume knowledge. And I think by not assuming knowledge, um, you actually can, can remain – current and you can remain what I think is the most important element of good broadcasting remain inclusive rather than exclusive my um, mentor in the early years of my television career was the the late Reg Guttridge mm. who was the ITV boxing commentator and, and just a, a wonderful man 
and he took a particular interest in, in me and he he schooled me in a lot of the detail of commentary, but he also schooled me in thinking about what the job actually entailed. And he used to rebuke me for commentating to the dressing room, trying to impress football coaches watching, maybe football players. Oh, maybe really? Football. And he used to, to, to say to me, you know, is, is your grandma watching? It was one famous interrogation I got from him. And I said, yeah, she always watches my, whatever she was, eight-year-old grandma. Yeah. Said, well, she counts one viewer just like the England manager. Commentate to her. Yeah. Commentate to the taxi driver. Commentate to white Were you consciously man. aware that you were doing that? I, th- I think when, when you get inside track and actually get to know footballers and get to have audiences with famous football managers and people, yeah. and you can actually stroll up and down dressing room corridors and people know who you are, there is a great danger that you become one of them. Yeah. If you're employed by the football industry, which I'm not really, I'm, I'm, I earn a living from, from football, but I'm employed as a broadcaster, as a communicator. Yeah. But if I was actually employed as a football coach, as a, a liaison officer, as a press officer, whatever, then that that would be my core industry and they would be the people that I considered my colleagues. And so you have a certain um, viewpoint on, on, the, on the game and the whole culture of the game, mm. which is inside track. Broadcasters cannot be inside track. I, I would be, I would go so far as to say that occasionally um, organizations like Sky Sports, for all the good things they do, they do tend to broadcast to the dressing room. Mm. And if you're not careful, you then... I think it's almost a, a different audience when you move on to a terrestrial channel where you're not talking to one and a half million people who've subscribed to watch football mm. and are therefore uh, they indoctrinated. Want to, they want you're to now, be in the you're, room. you're now commentating to your Uncle Ernie and your Auntie yeah. Anne who may only watch five football matches a year. I actually had a debate on the eve of the World Cup semi-final, which is the largest audience that I've ever worked with, as to whether actually that there's an argument for explaining the offside law at some stage during the commentary. Right. Because it, it, we've all been that, that, that kid sat in the back row of the maths class where you get 20 minutes in and you think to yourself, I haven't understood a word of this. You know? yeah. And it's just flying over your head. That's bad broadcasting. Yeah. And, uh, and so... In order to remain current, in order to remain relevant, I say you've, you've almost got to take a step back from, from, from the microphone and ask yourself, what are you doing and who you're broadcasting to? And if the audience is 5, 8, 10, 12, 28 million, then the, the role of the, of the community, the, the nature of the communication changes. Yeah, the yards and meters thing is an interesting thing that you mentioned because... I had a commentary review session with Rob Nothman at the BBC and, and it was fantastic and very valuable. But one of the things he said is you, you're referring, he said, what, what is that marking on the pitch? And it's the 22, the 22 metre. Yeah, because even I, through my own, you know... It's the 25-yard parent, line to parentage is, Yeah, it's 22 Absolutely. yards or whatever. So um, It's a five-yard scrum, you yeah, know. It, yeah. it, it is, and, and it's difficult. Um, at, but without sort of trying to blow my own trumpet... In a in a strange sort of world, even though I, I, I even though I'm in my sixties, I can remember what it was like being a young parent. But parenting in in thirties into the forties, when kids are, are toddlers and then going to, to to nursery school and then to secondary school, it 
that becomes your entire world. You, you kind of almost lose sight of everything else that's going on in the world. So that in actual fact, a 35-year-old commentator who's going through that may actually be living in a far more closeted world mm. than I am. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're making a conscious effort. Now, yeah. TV came to you in the late 80s. Granada with rugby league, cricket and football. I'll maybe come on to, on, on to those other sports in a second. Um, the shift from radio to TV commentary, how do you think those first few, few went? Well, it, it, it's one of the questions that you're asked most frequently. What's the, what's the biggest difference between radio and television commentary? And uh, I actually pose it as a rhetorical question if I'm speaking to broadcast students. And and the answer is, is oh, well, you talk less, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, no, the answer is very simple. You're less important on television. Mm. It's a visual medium. And it's really, really important as a television commentator that you get your, your thick thick ego around that yeah. as soon as possible yeah. because you, they can turn you down. Uh, they can't turn you down in radio, not if they want to experience what the, you know, the communication that you, you're trying to purvey. So that is far and away the, the biggest difference between um, radio and, and television broadcasting. And I, uh, I think that radio broadcasting in many ways is more fun. I think you broadcast more from the heart as a mm. radio broadcaster. You kind of plug in, the red light comes on, and away you go. Mm. And you obviously are partly descriptive. And... In television, you have to accept that secondary role. The the man or woman who's in your ear, the direct the director of the pictures, is far more important to the broadcast than you are. Mm. And so you follow their pictures. You listen to them. They're not listening to you. You're listening to them directing the cameras. So you've got maybe one or two clues as to where they're going next, what a replay is about to show. But but that is the redefinition of roles as soon as you go into that visual medium. And, and how did you find it? I think it's a, it, it requires more discipline. I think you have to learn it. I, I, I mean, I've talked about Reg as, as my mentor. I had other people who helped me with the technicalities, the, almost the vocabulary of television broadcasting, uh, to whom I'll, I'll, I'll be eternally uh, grateful. Uh, I don't think I ever really needed anybody like that in radio. Um, I remember um, my first program, Control, I actually had a late-night rock show when I first started. Um, lovely, and um, which was lovely until I played all the music I, I liked. And I realised <laughs> you have to play that's stuff. Not that you actually might not the like. brief. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, what, what were you playing, by the way? We should, uh, we should oh, cover. Gosh, no, nobody, nothing that anybody will have heard of anymore. Come on, someone might. Um, well, in those uh, early years, um, I actually went to a couple of um, festivals. I went to Nebworth a couple of times and interviewed uh, one of my all-time heroes, Frank Zappa. Oh wow! I interviewed Captain Beefheart. Um, I, um, and, and I, they were sycophantic, awful interviews. You know, <laughs> they were basically just drool coming down my yeah. chin, and, and most of my how questions were, well, "I, you, I think you you're great, gu- you." Yeah. Um, how do you play the guitar so well? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so not very objective uh, interviews, but um, I was doing a late night show. I was on from 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. and um, the cleaners would inevitably come in at, at, at some stage, and. Uh, during one show, I referred to a cleaner coming in and emptying the bins. And um, <laughs> my program controller had me in the next morning. He said, don't. Yeah, he said that there is a magic about radio. Don't talk about anything in the studio. Don't talk about the 
the the decks or the yeah don't tell them you're in a room yeah yeah because yeah. you know people listening particularly at that time of night there's an old movie called play misty for me which is you know all about the 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 kind of romance of of, of listening to a, a how you can fall in love with somebody you've never met who is just a voice just a broadcaster yeah who becomes a friend you know becomes a, a solace to you in some yeah. sort of way well we know that you and know, if you break down, if we? you break that spell by talking about real things mm. you've got you've got no chance of building that relationship yeah. so there are certain things that you need to learn about radio specific things but i think there are more things in tv because it's more technical because you are playing a supportive supporting role yeah okay you did rugby league and cricket as i mentioned you also went on to do basketball with the bbc how do you enjoy those sports well i was a football commentator uh, that's what I wanted to be, mm. and as as much as I knew a sport, that was the sport that I knew. The basketball was a, a, a an interesting example because I had four years at the BBC, which were really really important. It was the organisation I always wanted to work for, so it's great to have done commentaries for Match of the Day and so on, and, and yeah. worked alongside John Watson and Barry Davis. Um, but when the Olympic Games came around every four years. Um, you kind of, if, if you were new to the organisation, they came to you about a year before and said, look, we want you to go to Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, we don't want you to do football. F- f- football certainly was barely registered on the map as an Olympic sport in the 90s. Yeah. It's m- different now, but it's it certainly back then. I was I would be wasted as a football commentator in their eyes. Um, and uh, obviously it was the second Olympics of, of the, the, the dream teams, yeah. men and women, but particularly the NBA stars who'd been admitted in uh, in 92. Uh, and to, to, to commentate on them in Atlanta uh, just seemed like a great gig to me. So, yeah. But I knew nothing about basketball. I was going to say. so I, I had a, At least I'd grown up in a bit of a rugby league background um, in, the, in the Northwest. So when I took up r- the rugby league for ITV, I had some kind of inkling. But in both cases, I had to learn the sports. And how much do you have to learn the cadences of the delivery and, the, and, and, and what are the moments to look out for? Well, it was interesting really with the basketball because that was so short term. I think with rugby league, I was very lucky in so much that Eddie Waring, who, it, it, you know, people, it, it's easy to ridicule Eddie Waring, um, but he was one of those broadcast legends of mm. the 60s and 70s, the voice of the sport. You don't get the voice of a sport anymore because there are so many commentators commentating on nearly every yeah. every sport. But Eddie was, uh, and Ray French, who took over, you, you know, was a northern, northern voice, a, a guy who'd played at a very high level, both rugby league and, and rugby union. I came in as a more neutral voice, as more of a journalist, broadcaster, broadcast journalist, with a more, um, probably a kind of more modern sounding approach to the sport. And the sport embraced it. They loved it. Mm. The the sport, a lot of people in the sport felt that, 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 Eddie and Ray had kind of run down the the image and reputation of, of, of rugby league by being so northern. <laughs> and so uh, that was an open door for me, which I breezed through. Basketball just, was... Just by being slightly less northern. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and being actually commentating it in the same way that I would football. And, I mean, j- just as an example of how 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 wide the door was open, um, Widnes were probably the most successful team at that time. Uh, Jonathan Davis had left Rugby Union to go and play for them. Their coach was a guy called Dougie Lawton, who was a very, very good player and hugely successful as a rugby league coach. Very down-to-earth northern man. And um, I asked him once if I could come to a game 
um, and and maybe spend some time around him, you know, before and after. And he just said, "Come and sit next to me during the match." And I, I Magic. sat, it, and we're talking about sitting next to, you know, whoever yeah. Jose Mourinho or, yeah, or yeah. Jurgen Klopp during the match. Yeah, you know, where the assistant sits, that's where I was sitting, and um, you know, th- that's how much to, to the degree to which rugby league was prepared to to help you yeah. in order to promote their their sport. Their Cursory game. lesson for. For other sports, uh, with basketball, I kind of learned the sport by going to watch basketball locally, by getting to know people uh, in in the in the British basketball scene, um, by obviously learning the laws. I even had um, videos which they sent out to basketball officials to help them referee the game. Um, but it, until I actually started to call the game, I I didn't really know how i was going to sound yeah and um the bbc brought in an, an american found an american um, basketball writer who became my my great ally my my sidekick for every they're for worth every their match. weight in gold and, don't they and he he just he kind of he loved my the vocabulary because it was new and, it, mm. and and some of it wasn't actually ingrained in sort of um in, in well, in, in, in basketball yeah, culture, in, yeah, in basketball culture, and but he, he felt that gave it something a little bit. So I guess in in each case, I was adapting my football commentary to a new sport. Yeah, excellent. And and then after those four years, you were back with ITV. Um, I know you've mentioned pro- previously Brian Moore being one of those other voices that influenced you, also Reg Gutteridge. Um, you then became the main voice at ITV. Countless Euros, World Cups, Champions yeah, League let, finals. Let me t- tell you something about Brian Moore, who. Um, who, who, who sadly died very uh, too soon after he retired, um, and and it wasn't really until I sat in the church at his funeral that I realised what a great man he'd been. Uh, I count, uh, I count uh, him as one of my influences. Yeah, but big socialist, big Christian, um, a um, comprehensively educated child who um, got some kind of scholarship to go to a kind of a, a private or a grammar school. I can't remember and. Felt a little, um, uh, felt a little bit left out. Felt right. a little uncomfortable, and had to kind of fight his corner. Um, so you know, where 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 did his gift for the gap come from? I went to a boarding school where, you, you know, back in in the t- the time that I was educated in the late sixties, you either had to be tough or you had to be able to talk your way out of a corner. I wasn't tough, so the the the, the you know there was there was a, a certain. Um, Certain echoes of, if you like, yeah. of, of both of our childhoods that we hadn't had it hard in terms of um, uh, it, it, we hadn't had it economically or financially hard. No, but it's all relative but, to your but, life, yeah, isn't but it? But we'd had to fight our corner in, 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 by you know by talking our way out. Now, I would I would bitch privately about Moro um, something terrible t- to myself. Um, in the year, in in the, the couple of years before he retired, and I was trying to make my way and trying to get more of the games. Yeah, he, he retired after the '98 World Cup final, and I remember pitching to my boss big time. I'd had a pretty good tournament, I thought, the games I'd been given, mm. and I couldn't see why I couldn't have one of the ITV quarterfinals. You know, Brian was doing them both, um, and it was only kind of later that I came to appreciate what he had that I still haven't got, and. I've talked about inclusivity as being a really important quality in good broadcasting. Warmth, warmth yeah, okay. is such it, and it's almost difficult, almost impossible to define. You just hear you hear it in a voice 
like Dermot O'Leary. You hear it in yeah in Declan, uh, particularly Declan more so than Ant. You, it's just an engagement, just the way they look into the camera, the way they talk to you. You feel as if you know, you feel as if you could have a pint with these guys. You know, you feel as if you'd become. And by the way, you'd be right. They are both mm. the kind of guys who. You, you would strike up an immediate friendship once they trusted you that you'd strike up an immediate friendship with but and you that, don't you don't count yourself Brian Moore had in spades mm. now I was at that time very kind of smart ass very clever with words very um very sharp in eye dance very well connected in terms of you know I knew kind of the tactics I had an idea what formation any manager was going to it so yeah. I had a lot of things that maybe weren't as critical to Brian, but just that natural uh, likability, that, that the amiability, that the aim, it was such an amiable man, and somehow he translated that, you know, through the microphone, through the screen, and into the, the, the homes of the people who, who are, after all, are inviting you into their homes to accompany a very important event in their life, uh, a football match. Mm. And... Um, I, I, I say I didn't identify it almost until it was too late. Really, what what Morrow had that I definitely didn't have then, and certainly don't have to the degree that he had now. Yeah, great war. Bill McLaren, you know. Yeah, yeah. If, if you look at the, the 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 if you look if you wanted to be really ultra critical about. Bill McCarran certainly is a 21st century rugby commentator. You could be in the same way that you could be, but Brian Johnston, wonderful, wonderful cricket commentator. Um, but you could you you could pick fault compared to the the you know the modern day mm-hmm. wh- whoever you want to say Vaughan or Atherton or or whatever. But what those gr- and true great commentators had was that that connection with this massive audience they were talking to. And it came because they were good people and they were able to make you believe that through the screen. Warmth is big, big thing. Mm. You said that you don't seem, you don't feel you have it in the way that he did. How would you describe your voice that's so familiar to so many? I think we're in a different era. Um, and I, I think knowing Moro uh, uh, as uh, as intimately as I did, you know, um, he was very, he was very, very helpful to me, despite my my private bitchiness about, you know, <laughs> where, whether I could identify a goal scorer half a second quicker than he, which actually doesn't matter a jot, yeah. as long as you don't get it wrong. Yeah, um, I think um, I think Twitter has changed a lot. I think if you talk to any modern broadcaster, they feel under constant scrutiny, and I I, I must be clear about this. I'm I, I, I'm not some kind of PC hater. I think most political correctness is absolutely correct. I think most political correctness is actually just consideration for fellow human beings and for feelings and and trying um trying to be respectful of of of, of anybody you come into contact with. And as a as a broadcaster you come into contact with millions of people that you never meet. So it's very important to to try harder to understand their circumstances and the positions and how they may be perceiving what you're saying so that you are respectful. So I've got no problem with PC as such. The The problem with Twitter is just the, the kind of routine abuse levels and the way that certain media organizations report it 
almost as if it was fact, and certainly as if it's some kind of opinion poll. Twitter is not an opinion poll. This is not a cross-section of people. These are just the loudest voices Mm. uh, being heard. And um, I've got no problem at all. I'm not active on Twitter, but I have a Twitter account. And it's very important that I'm aware of, of the feedback in my app mentions during the course of a broadcast, a live broadcast night, in case I've said something which has somehow struck a nerve with an awful lot of people and needs addressing. That is important. I don't mind, although I I don't make a point of looking through my app managers after a game, seeing a load of your useless, you know, with with lots of uh, uh, expletives added. That's fine. That's a matter of opinion. What is difficult are what I call the Twitter vultures. Did he just say, was that, was he trying to say, uh, did, and before you know it, the original debate as to whether he did say that and what he did mean has actually been overtaken by the discussion of what he might have said and what it might have meant. Mm. And um, I, on the um, on the day of the, um, and this is a rather sad indictment, and I don't want to give any kind of glass half empty. I've got the best job in the world. I love my work and I look forward to every game that I do. And a World Cup semi-final involving England, Gareth Southgate, who was at our wedding, you know, a really, really close friend. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's as, as big and as good as, as my job can possibly get. Biggest audience I've ever worked with. Best feel-good probably among that audience that I've ever had the privilege of, of, of working with. But on the day of the game, somebody close to me professionally said, you don't seem very excited. And... I heard myself say, and um, you can bleep this if you want, I can only f*** up tonight. There is yeah. nothing I can do tonight to enhance my reputation in any way at all. Yeah. Uh, all I can do, and that was the exact word I used, is mess up. Yeah. And that's, I think that Moro and Murray Walker and Bill McLaren and Henry Longhurst, and certainly Peter Alice, who's had some 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 issues. Um, all those great names, even Barry and Motti to a degree. I think they'd have found that that level of scrutiny um, difficult. Yeah. I think they'd have found it. Um, I, I, I think they would have found that it would be a little inhibiting, mm. and that and it's a shame that we've reached uh, that that position um, where. Um, you know, literally, I, I I used to play a game um, when Top Gear was in its pomp as to how far into the program Clarkson would get before he said something that would end my career. That if you'd said... Seven or eight minutes. That if you'd said... Same box, same time of night, yeah, same corner of the living room, and yet he can be irreverent. I'm, you know, I'm not an elected official. I'm not, um, I'm not a um, a priest, uh, not a church leader, not yeah, a school yeah, yeah. leader. Where, where, where have par- I in, there, inherited this responsibility? There are parameters within so which many people we expect people to act aren't that they? I can pervert or offend. Where's this come from? You know, yeah, yeah. why, why can whatever mock the weak say a million things which I cannot say? Well, I, I don't necessarily want to say them. I say I've no problem with PC. I think it's mm. good. I think it, it, it's. I say it's respectful. Is, it, is this coming it, from a place? There is a level of, of scrutiny which inhibits you. Is this coming from a place of an episode or two that have that have hurt you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. one or two things that could have got out of hand. Um, nothing that I am ashamed of. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, or, or really uncomfortable with. I mean, if I give you an example, probably the most extreme example in recent years would be two years ago during the European finals. Now, um, I was working at Radio City in Liverpool at the time of Hillsborough. I was actually at the Heisel Stadium counting dead bodies. By a quirk of fate, I was not at Hillsborough. Everton played in an FA Cup semi-final the same day at Villa Park, and I, I broadcast that game. But I was very, very heavily involved in, in the aftermath of Hillsborough and feel involved in it to this day. Yeah. Uh, I know two people who died, um, and I from from that evening, um, when I was called in by my boss to host a, a phone in the following morning, um, I have a very strong personal um, passion about the, the the fight for justice, which the the families have undertaken and to a large extent now won. Mm. Um, so it would be difficult outside of my own family and those I love to think of anybody I would less want to offend than the the Hillsborough families. Yeah. Um, during England's opening game at the Euros, um, they were much better than Russia. They took a long time to score the final, the first goal, and eventually Eric Dyer scored. And uh, this is a minute after the goal. Um, Glenn Hall said something to the face. Wow, they really, really deserve that. I'm so pleased. And I came out with a very, very trite phrase, which was justice for the England 11. That's what I said. I moved on. Yeah. Um, it wasn't my greatest commentary line by any means, but you know what it it's meant. It's entirely inoffensive. By the time though. I came off, off air, I was in the midst of a Twitter storm that I had offended the people who died at Hillsborough. Good grief. Justice. The word justice. That's quite a leap. Now, it's easy for you and I to sit here and debate that that nobody's got a monopoly on the word justice. Uh, And, by the way, there'd been justice for the Weatherfield 3 on Coronation Street. There had been any number of, (laughs) you know, uses of that kind of a phrase. And people had been even more trite than I'd been with it. Um, But, you know, I was now contacting uh, Andy Burnham. I was now contacting Margaret Aspinall and trying to... I suppose partly selfishly, but mainly out of sheer shock and horror that this was being levelled at me. And that's how quickly it can mm. happen. I because mean, in some of these things, the the you know, particularly I would say with things like Twitter storms, uh, and, unless it is escalating without you being you know to to a frightening degree, you know, almost recognising it and apologising for it is taking it to a place that it might not have got to. I anyway. didn't apologise immediately. I contacted. The, I I. I was fortunate in so much as I was writing a weekly blog for Kick It Out at the time. I'm sort of heavily involved with Kick It Out, which is um, which which became a um, a platform for me to to put my case. Mm. And part of my case was, wow, I've got to be careful here. I've got to be more careful than I realise because if the word justice can offend people, then any number. Of, and I I did it from a slightly confessional point of view, but I made it absolutely clear that that I refuted any suggestion yeah, well, of that I, I'd been disrespectful. But I tried, I tried to be a little bit more intelligent than that and look at it and ask myself whether, you know, it, it, even a throwaway comment of that kind. I mean, we 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 can both go and see a comedian, and and he or she may tell a joke which I think's funny and you think's unfunny that uh, I f- find offensive and you find totally inoffensive. So the first thing is, again, no, nobody, at least of all the Daily Mail, have, have got a monopoly on, on what's morally acceptable in this world and what's not. Yeah. So, which is fine, you and I debating now coolly, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in this kind of setting. But, but obviously football matches are... Um, everybody's running a, a fever when they're watching them and, and stuff 
you know pours out which is you know people might find even if they've just got an attachment to the club they may, may find it in inverted commas offensive so I, I try to recognize that in my confessional at the same time as as defending myself but once I heard from Margaret that the families didn't find that offensive then actually I could sleep comfortably yeah, yeah. You know, well, but I, I knew that I hadn't offended the people that really mattered yeah well there should have been no chance that you ever did with a remark like that it's, it's incredible um this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom a mother figure or yourself as a mom find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm going to take you back because there's a slight the, the that side of things is interesting but I want to take you back to the to the question I asked which was how would you describe your voice that's that's familiar to so many uh I th- I think I'm the worst I think commentators are the worst judges of commentators anyway but um <laughs> uh I occasionally um I, I'm one of the many, many fortunate things about my job is I can walk down Oxford Street and nobody's got a clue who I am. Yeah. Occasionally, I will walk into a shop and order something, and somebody will say, "You Clive Tilsey?" Oh, that's, that's uh, so nice. that's that. I, I suppose it is. Um, you know, it's it's the birth, it's the it's the oral oral birthmark that uh, that yeah, I, yeah. I carry around uh, with me. My answer is my answer is always it depends whether you like him or not. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't, I'm John Watson. Yeah, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, in terms of prepping for football, I mean, I'll get a rugby team at midday on a Friday, and I've got I'll do three four hours prep on that. Football teams can be announced just before kickoff. I'm intrigued as to as to that world. Now, I know fellow football commentators that say, "Well, you you prep on on you know seventy eighty percent of the expectation, and that's it." In that regard, is that accurate in terms of your history and and have you found that? I think my attitude towards uh, prep has changed over the years. Um, I think it's important to do it. Um, I think it's important, particularly for a, a live game where you are the principal broadcaster, to go on air knowing more about and around that game than anybody who's watching. I think that's kind of your job. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not difficult to do if you've got time and resources. 
the difficult bit is how you use your prep. Yeah. That that's the, the I, I've never worked. I've never been trained as a journalist. I have written newspaper columns and newspaper reports on, on matches and so on. Um, but I would hope that I'm reasonably editorially strong. I think that is one of the things that I was taught by my first boss in television, a guy uh, called Paul Doherty at Granada Television. Um, we would have a Friday evening uh, preview program and I would go out and do interviews Wednesday, Thursday, and then come back and edit a, a three-minute uh, piece. And he would ask me as I left the building with the film crew, what's the story? And he would ask me when I came back into the office, now what's the story? And I th- it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a kind of almost like a fable of a tale. And he would do it every time. You know, yeah. he comes. Yeah. Um, but actually, he made the point to the extent that I, I remember it and pass that, pass that tale on over and over again. Mm. And actually, when you sit down and write your intro words for teams coming out and so on and so forth and, and, and the team captions – then I am continually have the voice of Paul Doherty echoing in my head. What's the story? What does yeah. this mean? Why? Why is it? Why is it of of interest? And and you can have a welter of facts and figures. And I actually think that um, there are one or two commentators who should have a um, a little trailer going across the bottom of the screen, which says, "I've flipping well done this research, so you're done well going to hear it." Yeah, you know, yeah. It, 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 you really should only be using ten percent of the information that you compiled in front of you. But the prep is important. I lay it out very neatly in three different colours in a certain style. Handwritten. That's, that's my yeah, yeah. That's my safety net. Yeah. That's how it goes into the head as you're writing it out. Um, Alec Ferguson had the, um, the the two Champions League uh, commentary charts. F- that they won United framed in his office. You know, they are they are actually almost like a piece of a fairly anal art, but a piece well, of... they're a, a moment pe- in time, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. They, they represent the, the moment pretty pretty well, like almost like a, 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 a home-grown programme, if you like, a match programme. Um, so, yeah, but that's all safety net. I, I think if somebody stole it 30 seconds before it went on air, I think I would be worried, but I'd... I could still do the broadcast. That's yeah. they're not absolutely essential. I don't know how often I really look down at them mm. during the, but they're there, and I have a note on goal scoring for every player. But I only use that fact even when they score, yeah. or if they have a near miss and they haven't scored for three years or whatever. But yeah. but the, um, I, I do hear biographical information being trotted out, and I actually think the information that's more important is not what their last club was or how much money they cost. It's the story of the day. I, I will probably Google news each player um, rather more than, than Google fact each yeah. player. I'd yeah, see yeah. what the story is about that player, who they're being linked with, whether they've got a contract up, you know, wh- whether the manager has said something about them. Um, I think that's a, a more interest and, and relevance. It's than, personality than information, and isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 What, what would appear really in on the, the you know, I struggled to even think about the back page. I can't remember when I last picked a newspaper up, but what was back page news? Mm. Yeah. What have been your favourite names to get your lips around over the years? I, I, I never have a huge problem with that because, um, you know, but when when I hear people sort of say, ah, oh, don't call him Aspiliqueta, we call him Dave. <laughs> well, he's called Aspiliqueta. You just learn it, you know. It's, yeah. it's you've never had a have a problem learning names. Um, I, I no, I don't think so. It's, it's no, critical I, to the craft, I think, to get it right. Yeah, I think, um, I think, I think, 
we can get a, a little too anoraki about pronunciations. I always do try to get pronunciations right. I'm not having players changing their names halfway through their careers. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, Andrew Cole, but he's scored 300 goals as Andy Cole. I can't, I mean, I'm in the identification business. I can't suddenly start calling you Andrew Cole because your mum has now decided that she wants you to be <laughs> Andrew. It's too late. You are a brand. You're Andy Cole. You're Andy Cole. He scores goals or whatever. You know, that's that's who you are. Yeah. And, and similarly with... Um, you know, when when new players come into our game or onto our radar, we do try to check the pronunciations. But I don't do, um, I don't do th 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 in Spain because if you try to use a sound which is not actually in the English language, all you're doing is making. There was a really good story. Um, Rude Hullet, uh, <laughs> who um, worked with ITV on a World Cup of few years ago des Lynham was um was the host because this was the story and um des sort of checked with him it is hollet isn't it and rude said no call me gullet and again you know des who was absolutely magnificent to work with yeah. um said well it's a bit late now because you scored a goal in a european championship final as rude hollet and what rude was saying was actually that it's a guttural sound that you don't make yeah so you hollet's wrong and gullet's wrong but what's right don't worry about. Yeah. I don't mind either way. So yeah, you yeah. may as well call me Gullet because it's a G, and that's yeah. what you would call it. Yeah. So he was particularly unconcerned. So trying to be clever with, I mean, this, the guy who plays for Southampton, Pierre Hubier, it's it's Hoiberg, and that's what he is, you yeah. know. And and if he, you know, comes knocking at my front door and says, "Look, mate, you're getting it wrong. I need you to get it right. It's very important to my life." I might think about it, but <laughs> as somebody whose name is constantly mispronounced, um, oh, well, you know, what do you well, get? You get? Well, you get cold calls, don't you, from yeah, yeah. somebody who's trying to sell you so. And, and till, till it, it's just that lovely moment when you pick your your own domestic phone up and somebody is breaking the law. They say. Hello, is that Mr. Tyle? Oh, you got it wrong. Sorry. And you, that's fine. <laughs> so I've been there. It doesn't really worry me too much. Yeah, okay. Um, Champions League final 2005. Uh, now, I don't know if anyone's spoken to you about the prophetic nature of your commentary that night. I've got a confession to make here. I know we said we wouldn't be too episodic about incidents. Um, but there are particular moments you admire by certain broadcasters, and this is one of them where I've got a bit fanboy about it. So you'll you'll have to uh, en- entertain me momentarily. Um, as we know, it was three 0 at half time. Maldini goal on fifty seconds, two by Crespo. Um, I ended up having your piece of commentary on Gerard's goal as a text alert for about six months um, because. I just thought the prophetic and brilliant nature of it was so good because you said, hello, hello, here we go. Stephen Gerrard puts a grain of doubt in the back of Milan minds, which you may well remember. Um, And there was something about the hello, hello, here we go. When they're 3-0 down and it was just one goal back, that when I've I've watched the game back again and I was watching highlights of it again this week and it's so sort of passionately optimistic to the audience. It is as if you know how the night's going to end. And... And I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by by where your head was at yeah. that point. Is is that about telling people? You know, I are you, think are you, it was. That are was you doing more a broadcaster's? Theatrical. Are you doing more of a broadcaster's job to keep the audience? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a couple of stories. I think that um, the '99 final was probably more prophetic 
that you know whatever it was can they score they always score yeah and that actually came from a, a, a piece of broadcasting i heard by mark lawrenson strangely on on five live on the saturday when the fa cup final it was on the friday evening actually he'd been asked for a prediction about the fa cup final and he said well it won't be Manchester united nil they always score and it wasn't factually correct but there was a feeling about that Manchester united team that you you, you remember Giggs's goal in the seventh very Loro as well and so, isn't it? And so forth that, that they always seem to find a way to win a game in in turin and so on and so forth yeah uh, so I think that was more based on some kind of editorial stroke gut instinct that that Manchester United aren't quite out of this and they had just for the first time that night started to pose a bit of a threat in the five minutes prior to that so that there was a certain amount of crescendo about that I watched the 2005 final back in its entirety for the first time Probably I watched it probably the following day, but then I watched it again before the two teams met again two years later in the final, mm. and I'd forgotten how little of the game Liverpool had had outside of those six and a half minutes when they scored the three goals. Mm. That once it got back to three three, Milan carried on dominating the game just as if yeah. they did never happen. Yeah, and uh, Dudek made that crazy save, and they went to penalties and so on yeah. and so forth. But Liverpool played far better in 2007 against Milan and were beaten. They had very little of that game. It, it was an extraordinary game for so many reasons. I I can't think, and I'm not naming names, that Champions League winners' medals have been handed out to six less deserving cases than half a dozen of the players in that Liverpool team. I that, would agree. That match was won by about five or six players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mainly by Stephen Gerrard was three of them. Yeah. Um, and he played in three different positions. Although, although you know, I'm happy to call, to call out Jimmy Traore as one of those people you would be surprised to have a Champions League medal, but he makes that clearance he on the line. He makes the clearance, yeah. So, and Spence actually played really well when he came yeah. on. Carragher had a great game, but there weren't many. I'm, I'm going back to, you know, Smith's a goal. It's in, it's in. Two goals in two minutes for Liverpool. Yeah. Then you leave a brilliant pause, which is what a TV comment is all about because you allow the atmosphere to hold and then you come in with miracles the, are possible yeah, and it's like oh my god now it's 3-2 the difference between 2 and 1 Nick. I mean uh, <laughs> the 1 came from nowhere true um, f- funnily enough uh, it, it, it just came back onto uh, uh, into my um, thinking in the last few days uh, I did a game uh, where Liverpool played in Paris against Paris Saint-Germain and um, were absolutely shocking, and I was doing it live for ITV. Um, they, I think, went two nil down, but it was two going on twenty two, rather as it was three going on thirty three in Istanbul that night. Um, and I actually got a, I, I was, I was starting to sound as if we had the second leg the following week, and I must have been starting to sound as if it, this is all over because mm. Liverpool are terrible and 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 they're getting well beaten here. And I got a voice in my ear from a guy called Jeff Farmer, who was my editor on the night, saying, "Build it up a bit." And, and I, I don't—I very rarely had that at any stage in my career. Come yeah. on, sell this. Come on, yeah, yeah. And um, and about two minutes later, uh, PSG scored for a third time, and I actually went on the lazy just to hear. Just said, now, now, what do I say? You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I think there was a bit of an element of you never know. 
yeah. when when they got one back because yeah. there, there was no sign of a comeback. Whereas there was a, a sign of a United comeback, I think, towards the end in '99, there wasn't at that stage any sign of a Liverpool comeback. Yeah. So um, and their mission accomplished. Become, yeah, Stevie mentioned it in his book, funny enough, which is nice. Oh, did he? I, I, yeah. I didn't notice that. Yeah, which was which was lovely. So um, yeah, yeah, I mean, people do remember it, and that's nice. Yeah. But I, uh, I have no idea where it came from. Yeah. Well, it's one of my. I'm highlights. not sure it was justified. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly was in terms of the atmosphere of the night. Um, and and then the question, you know, and plenty of people will will obviously write details of the top and re, and and write some outlines here and there. Do you write lines? Because you know, hear, hearing things, particularly using that game as an example, purely because I was watching it. You've got the penalty save of Shevchenko that Dudek saves and then there's the two phrases the European Cup is returning to Anfield and to Liverpool Liverpool are champions of Europe again now it's it's feasible that a line like that is written on either side of your of your paper is is that what you would do yeah for um uh, for a, a cup final and particularly for the more particularly funny enough for the trophy presentation which I think is um a commentary uh, it, it, you've you've almost peaked and done the game, and then you go back to the studio, and then oh, and I go back to, you know for for the for the trophy presentation, and um, I think you've almost got to kind of gather yourself. You've probably used all your best stuff by now, anyway. Mm. Um, so when I know I'm doing a trophy presentation, I do do two sides of a piece of paper with some pertinent facts. They're not lines as such, but yeah, they okay. are. It, it's really what's going back to watch the story that. Um, you know, whatever Real Madrid have now won this four times in six years. No, no yeah, team yeah. since the nineties. So, so all those facts that are relevant to that, and similarly, all the facts that are relevant to them losing. Yeah, I, I write out in terms of little kind of half phrases and and headlines which I can I can use. And 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 for the actual trophy lift that moment, which might get replayed. Similarly, for the final whistle. Yeah. Then, what does this moment mean? Yeah. And um, and and I think you've you've just I I can't remember those lines, but I'm glad that they're the lines because they're nothing too fancy. They're no, exactly. just statements. Yeah, it, it, well, that's the fact of the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kings no. of Europe again, top of top, you know, top of the world. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever. I, I mean, maybe a different way of saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. No, um, but, it, but it's what needs to be what, said. What I don't think is very good commentary is somebody saying, "Oh, it's fantastic. It's wonderful." It's just brilliant. It, uh, yeah, fine. Think it through. What, I, what does it mean? Yeah, yeah. What is the significance of this club winning this match or yeah. th- this trophy? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'll do a little bit of that. But they're not – I mean, the, the stuff like – um, whatever name on the trophy and stuff that that wasn't that you can't you can't you can't anticipate a game where Manchester United going for a treble play pretty poorly Bayern Munich scuffed two chances in the eight second and eighty sixth minute then substitute their captain and then United bring on two substitutes and win the game you can't. Yeah. I mean, how many how many different scenarios have you got to write before you get to well, page fifty six? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So no, <laughs> you're careful to ensure the right words are used. I read an interview with you where you've said you know a goalkeeping error is not a disaster or a tragedy. But- yeah, I think Paisel did that for me a little bit. I think and and Hillsborough. I think I think living on Merseyside and working on Merseyside and working um, directly with the fallout from those um, two very different events, in my opinion. But they were both tragic because people died, people went to football matches and didn't come home. That's a tragedy. Mm. Um, there's a few. There's Boris a few. Warriors letting the ball slip through his hands is not. It, I, I, it, you, you, I think vocabulary is really, really important, and I do try to give thought to using 
the the correct uh, vocabulary for a particular i try not to use great very often Hmm. because i think that's quite quite a special word certainly in terms of a great player or or a great manager i try to to be fairly selective when i use that word some people don't like words associated with uh, with war do they things like this is this is a battle, battle yeah. this is, you know those sorts yeah, of things very often you know the best football the the biggest football cliches are the the best use of the vocabulary for that particular a game of two halves is a game of two halves you know mm. if if you have um, a match in which one team went two nil up at half time the other team right then it is a game of two halves and yeah. you can get parried in private eye very quickly for doing i remember uh, once reading in coleman balls um, John Watson, who I really know, uh, know and really, really like, saying that the Ar- the Argentine squad at the World Cup are numbered alphabetically. And that was in Coleman balls as an error. No, they were numbered alphabetically. Ardiles was two. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they, that, that's exactly how they numbered their squad. Yeah. It, it was a succinct, succinct and clear a definition of the way they numbered. And yet it was seen as something comedic. No, it wasn't comedic at all. He was right. Yeah, it's yeah. you that's wrong. So, um, I'm yeah, but but... I, I tend to use calamity a lot. I, I think calamity is more, more. Maybe it's an on a matter peak thing. It, calamity just sounds more like a clown dropping a bucket of water <laughs> yeah. than catastrophe, disaster, and tragedy. I, I tend to steer clear of. Yeah. Okay. Um, what moments are you most proud of? Uh, I can tell, um, I can I, tell I, in, so I far think, in our conversation, you're going to be a man who shies away from this question. Well, but. I, I think other people judge. Judge you and, and are there one and, or two moments that, that stick in the mind so where you've thought I've, I've the, nailed that pretty I well. The, I think the most important football match in my career, because it was twelve months after Brian Moore's retirement, uh, twelve months into my stint as ITV's senior commentator, which I guess I still am, um, was the nineteen ninety nine Champions League final. With, there was an audience of, of twenty million. Uh, there was a very big finish, and if I'd got that wrong in some way then I wasn't exactly on trial. I had a contract and I had employers who were confident in me. But if I'd messed up that night, as opposed to the kind of Twitter definition of messing up, I, you know, they would have been entitled with the contracts they had, FA Cup and Champions League, to, to see if Motti fancied a bit of <laughs> Champions League. So I yeah, think okay. getting that right that night, th- those five minutes right, was really important in my career. And I think the best seconds of that five minutes of commentary were the silences after the two goals went in, the thinking time. Mm. Uh, and where did name on the trophy came from? It came from those... I mean, the, the, there are three seconds. Or so. I mean, it's not just a breath. There, There is... Uh, if, you, if you listen back to it, there is some clear thinking time. And again, something that Reg gave me... Um, the, there was an incident, um, uh, funny enough, the year before... Um, uh, when Michael Owen scored against Argentina, um, Moro was commentating. Um, I was in our kind of Paris HQ um, uh, um, with Peter Drury and a lot of other people watching the game. And when Owen scored, the, we were all leaping around. There was total bedlam. And when we finally all sat down again, I actually said to Peter Drury rather prophetically that if we're ever fortunate enough to commentate on a moment like that, We've just learned you can say whatever you like for the next ten seconds because nobody will hear it. Yeah, uh, they'll hear it again one day. Yeah, or, it, or but, don't say anything. Yeah, but yeah, but I think that you know the the silence is. I think the pacing of a commentary is very very important. I think a lot of 
2018 commentators talk far, far too much. I think they get nervous about filling the gaps. Mm. I don't know whether it's a modern style. There's a more conversational style of commentary now, which, again, I think isn't very inclusive. I think it all gets a bit chummy and... I will, I'm, I will, I'm going to say it, fletch this and macker that. No, yeah, no, yeah. no, not not for me. Yeah. Darren and Steve, fine, but not too many of those, please. Yeah, um, just just commentate, just d- think, d- have a relation. Doesn't matter who you are. You are you are you are in good company with uh, with Mr. Barry Davis, who feels very similarly. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, but but then you can you can introduce, you can control the pace of the commentary far better than as the lead commentator. If you've got that understanding that it's not going to be as conversational as that, yeah, I think in jokes and and you know what you said at lunch and I mean what I mean couldn't yeah, yeah. have you had a bet on that? I hate uh, again going back to um, uh, uh, ageism, which I I may well be suffering from a little bit now, and and again asking people to look beyond the actual age of somebody and the way that they commentate. You'd, ne- you'd ne- never, ever hear me say, uh, goalkeepers these days don't want to pick the, you know, they just want to kick. I, I would yeah. never say these days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like immediately, well, there are people half my age saying things like that. Yeah. You know, you're not allowed to tackle these days. I mean, what, what on earth does that it mean? It gets someone's somebody, back up immediately, doesn't somebody it? Somebody of 15 or 16 years of age, no idea. Yeah. That's what the only football... That that they know, you know, yeah. that you you know, you've got to be inclusive. You've got to think, you, you've got to think about the size and the and the breadth of your audience and commentate to them accordingly. That's that is part of our responsibility. It's part of the art of communicating. So silences are very much a part of that. Yeah, and and yeah, maybe the best commentary I've ever done was shutting up for a few seconds after each of those two very big goals in my career. Yeah. Um- Martin Tyler was uh, was someone I was uh, looking up recently and actually looking at th- at the famed Aguero goal and there's nine seconds after he says Aguero to when he then says you'll never see anything like that again and and watching that and actually timing it and going there you go there's there, there's a moment to let the he crowd. says I swear you'll never see anything something like that isn't it I think so which yeah which I yeah. think is great that's right yeah. that's right you don't prepare that yeah yeah absolutely um, any any that you consciously you know to this day have brought with you in terms of I'd love to have, I'd love to have done that again oh every game. <laughs> No, every game when you watch it back. Yeah, okay. You don't know, you, what, do you, what are you liable to? Do you, is there anything you pick out? I think it's, I say, I think I used to be far too smart ass. I think I still lapse into it occasionally. <laughs> um, you know, the, you, it, it's a fine line because in order to uh, – entertainment is part of what we do. Obviously, information, you know, insight, et cetera, et cetera, all those things that you're trying to do, identification and, and, and so on, they, they are – they are, if you can, the, the important um, uh, scaffolding of, of, of putting a commentary together. How do you embroider it? You, you embroider it maybe with a little turn of phrase, which it, it, hopefully I, I, I have from time to time, and maybe with a apathy remark, mm. uh, something which makes people laugh, yeah. or uh, maybe something which is a bit naughty, but, but, you know, within the confines that the, the 21st century will, will permit. Um, and... With those, they either work or they don't, mm. and you kind of know halfway through saying them whether they're working or not. Yeah, that's and when true. they don't work, they are horrible. Yeah. Beyond the spontaneous lines, you've also given plenty of rehearsed ones to uh, to video games over the years. Yeah. Um, what's that like? Um, 
and and you've script, hard work. You've scripted enough. some of it as well because it yeah, need, it yeah. needs to when, be natural, when, I guess. When I inherited the FIFA contract from Motti, funnily enough, um, I I had a son who is now twenty three. So I guess probably around about the age of six would he be playing? So it was a long time ago, mm. and um, so I think I probably had more of an insight as to how important this was and could be in in the lives of a lot of people and therefore in my career. Yeah. Um, and I think there was a period when I was the main voice on FIFA um, where I probably was getting as much exposure from that as I was from being ITV's lead commentator on a lot of live football. Yeah, arguably more probably. Yeah, yeah. But just in terms of profile, I think yeah, it okay. probably meant as much to... So it was very important to me that we did the job properly. EA at the time... Um, I mean, the game was always made in Vancouver. It was made by quite a lot of British guys, but a lot of Canadian guys too. Um, the um, the soundtrack was always perceived to be secondary to the gameplay, although in actual fact, at that time, Pro Evo probably was more popular with game players because there was, I think, at that time, the gameplay on on uh, on Pro I, Evo was I went, better. I went from FIFA, FIFA to, to Pro Evo. Yeah, but I think FIFA then rectified it that. did, yeah. They always had the licenses, so you didn't have London United and all that, Indeed, which was a yeah. big selling point. And then I think we improved the soundtrack too. And I think I was part of that. I actually mm. went over to Vancouver twice and gave um, seminars to the, the guys making it about the importance of sound. When... I inherited the script. It was full of kind of one-off lines, which were great the first time you heard them. But if you played FIFA for six hours, they drove you around the bend. Yeah. And I persuaded them that good commentary was not invasive. I've always had this thing about um, a, little, a little kind of illustration of good commentary, that if you go into an Italian restaurant and they're playing Italian music in the background. You don't listen to that music. It just becomes part of the ambience. It's it's probably um, very much a caricature of Italian music, but it kind of fits the setting. If you go in and you hear Indian sitar music, you notice it straight away. Yeah. And I think commentary is a little bit the same. If 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 you are somehow not marrying, matching the pictures in some way, uh, um, you're not complementing the pictures. If you're trying to override yeah. the, the, the pictures in some way, then I think you you, be, you become invasive. And the commentary scripts on FIFA were invasive. They were, mm. I think, cutting into people's entertainment, of the enjoyment of, of the actual gameplay. So I tried to take a step back, really, and just make them uh, more authentic. Yeah. Um, how do you write them? Well, you they they it's it's kind of like a family tree. You have a corner kick, and then you have good corner, bad corner. You have short corner, long corner, good okay. and bad, and so on. So they write, so they grow these scenarios, yeah, which come in little bursts of about four seconds, yeah. So you write a corner, and then on the script they'll have it's a corner, and then there's twenty empty spaces for you to write. And another twenty versions of it's, it's a, a corner, corner. <laughs> a corner then corner given, and and yeah. so it it is it's a, a long process writing the script, yeah, and making sure that each line then marries so that you don't have 
uh, one of these kind of train announcements where yes. the next train on platform yeah, I yeah. is the yes, and one or two of the old cricket commentaries, even Benno, you know, who is like one of the absolute doyens, would be a little bit where. They hadn't recorded the whole score, so it was Australia are 135. Yeah. Nine. <laughs> yeah. So, so finding the proper match in the intonation was another thing that I introduced. And you, beca- and they you become an actor in the voiceover, don't you? Because Absolutely. You've got to create the so, scenario. So when you sit in the studio for eight hours a day for five days, and part of that is uh, final score here is Albion Rovers 2, you've got to or uh, the final score here is Stranraer 2, and then you do another session of Stranraer 1, Stranraer 3. Yeah. And so you, you are continually... And now they've got, they've, they've got the intelligence to... They know to, which to one. It, all the, those yeah, together. Yeah. That's not the problem. Yeah. The problem is recording it in such a way that it makes it easy yeah. for them to link it together. And, the, and that you don't lose your mind. And that was the change that <laughs> I guess I brought about to the English language version of... Of FIFA, making the commentary less invasive, uh, more natural, and and also taking more care to make sure that it all fitted together. What would you like to have commentated on that you've never had the chance to? As a sport or um, sport event? Well, I've got a passion for golf, but I think I think um, I think sports like golf and cricket almost require former professionals. I think the the sort of classic team. Of in, in a football commentary is the broadcast journalist, the guy who, the guy or, or woman who's, you know, had their, their career is as a broadcaster. So they've learnt, I mean, I've edited football matches, you know, I've edited highlights of football matches. So you, once you've done all of those things, logged football matches, gone out, done filming, you, you are a broadcaster. So you have a feel for the medium. Mm. And then you have this guy or woman who is the co-commentator and they are the messenger. They are, they are the person that we always wanted to be, the person who's actually been down there on the field, been there, seen it, done it, and then have to somehow learn a skill as to how you come back and tell the rest of us what it's like to analyse it and mm. quickly during the course of a game. It's not enough just to... A great, comment, a great player doesn't necessarily make a great co-commentator because you've got to become a broadcaster. You know, you've, got, you've got to learn a little bit about our broadcast... Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of our broadcast profession so that in golf and cricket i'm not sure you need that lead person you need a presenter just to to hold the whole thing together but you maybe don't need that lead commentator because you that there's no play-by-play feel to it um i often say when asked my favorite commentator uh i, I talk about a guy called pat summerall who was the straight man to John Madden, um, when uh, NFL was first came to our screens, um, you know, back in in the days of John Riggins and Dyson and Marino, and they were the voices that I heard. And he was a very um, economical, succinct, uh, understated builder of of tension. He, uh, I mean, a lot of the vocabulary of American football commentary is is our numbers, you know, uh, third down and five or whatever yeah. and, um, and what's on the clock. But he was able to use that in, and present it in such a way which wasn't overblown but built tension, built drama. And um, uh, so uh, I, I suppose um, if I could have been another commentator, uh, Summerall would probably have been the guy.
Well, Clive, you're approaching your last week of commentating on sport. Uh, it's uh, it's a seven day period. You get to uh, to choose what you're going to commentate on. Um, how would it all end in an ideal world? I, I've never really, um, I've, I've never had a, well, I'm probably lying to myself, I've never had a tick list. I think um, probably when I started in television commentary, commentating on an FA Cup final um, was almost perceived to be um, the ultimate, maybe because there was a bit of competition between John and Barry at the time as to who would do the Cup final for the BBC. I was four years at the BBC, obviously got nowhere near the Cup final, but I did commentate on FA Cup finals for ITV. Uh, and then... You know, clearly, I've been fortunate enough to commentate on Champions League finals and World Cup finals. I haven't commentated on a World Cup final with England in it, but um, hmm. I guess a semi-final exclusively live on ITV is almost as big, if not bigger, in certainly in audience terms, it would be. So, yeah, they're, they're kind of all done. Um, and uh, no, I wouldn't. Uh, I, 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 I would love to be commentating on major live football on terrestrial television to large audiences on a more regular basis. Um, if you really wanted to to waste an hour of your life, you just need to ask me about um, the changing face of televised football and the danger of football taking its core audience for granted. Um, I think that the current subscription model um, of for exclusive television rights in the UK is in danger. Um, we've 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 operated to this model now since Sky came onto the scene in 1992. People, including ITV Digital, have fallen by the wayside trying to do it. Tell me, ten million pounds for a Premier League game is too much. You mm. cannot monetize that. Why are Amazon and Google not getting involved? Because they can't get their money back on that. Yeah, Sky and BT have become involved in a bit of a uh, an inflation war. Yeah, which which I think is hurting both of them too. Um, the well, audiences aren't big enough. I, I think I think there is unease within UEFA about the audiences for Champions League now, and it's not BT's fault. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just the the nature of the beast that that you know one one million one point three million one and a half million two million for a big game is how many people watch a game mm. on subscription television. We saw the audiences on BBC, and it's not, and this is not an ITV advert that, because the audiences are the same on BBC during the World Cup for fairly run of the mill games. Yeah, because it was free and live. It's our national sport. Yeah, um, fr- from coming home from the World Cup finals. Nobody from that England squad was going to appear in a live game on terrestrial television again until January, until the FA Cup. Mm. That's not right. When I say it's not right, it's not healthy for the future of television. As I've said already, we've got four kids in their 20s. I'm not saying they don't like football. The three boys do like their football very much. But they consume it in different ways. They consume it in bite size. Uh, They live in a world of going down the pub. They live in a world of illegal streaming. Um, they live in a world of FIFA where they can get as involved in e-sport as they can in real sport. Football's got to be careful. It's got to be careful that it doesn't marginalise itself. Other sports that need exposure have had to take action. You know, rugby is a case in point where it's really important that the Six Nations is on terrestrial television doing fantastic audiences. They can still take the Sky Dollar for the Autumn Internationals and so on. Um, 
but it 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 is absolutely vital that, and, and you can see from the problems now in premiership rugby trying to again trying to monetize club rugby um that it's it, it just hasn't got the appeal and and therefore the grassroots of the game which are vital to rugby because it isn't played in every school and every street in in the land cricket's got to learn the lesson too and is starting now to, to learn the lesson. Rugby League's almost sold its soul, really, in, mm. in terms of changing its entire calendar mm. just to get the, the you know, the, the television buck. Television is financing so many sports and the the tail is, is starting to wag the dog and football's the really big dog and at the moment, television, even though it finances football, it doesn't have a big enough say because football's in the hearts and minds of people in just about every nation in the world. But that can change if football's not careful. So I would love to be commentating on the same kind of um, calendar that I, that that ITV and BBC had five stroke ten years ago. I'd I, I tell you what I'd love to do. I'd love to commentate on a big Premier League game to a terrestrial audience because that has never happened. Not a single Premier League game has ever been shown on terrestrial television. That's that's mad isn't it yeah it certainly is well listen Clive uh, you mentioned being in your mid-60s a couple of times with the energy and your your focus and attention to detail you know you you definitely have many many more years ahead of you regardless of of what the uh, the birth certificate might say thank you so much for your time and uh, and enjoy the rest of your career thank you thank you well, Clive Tilsey there, uh, beginning about how he was just fascinated by television sport, which I guess has underpinned my career a bit. No doubt many of you out there who are listening and have the ambition to work in broadcasting, or maybe you're one of the people listening who already do and feel very similar. Um, I loved his astute phrase about the advance of social media, particularly Twitter. Twitter is not an opinion poll. It's the loudest voices being heard. Really worth bearing that in mind, I think, sometimes for any of us who can be overly criticised for perhaps not the best reasons out there um Clive regularly lectures at universities about how he's forged such a successful career and there were moments I think he fell a little bit into his lecturer's patter but I'm so grateful to speak to one of those voices that just is football that has been the voice of so many of those huge memories for football fans up and down the country and across the world no doubt as well Um, my huge thanks to him for taking the time to spend what was uh, well well over an hour together in the end Um, and that is series one Barry Davis John Hunt Nick Mullin Sarah Orchard Bob Ballard and Clive Tildesley. Um, as a podcast on commentary, I'd say that's a pretty decent spread. Um, and there will be a series two. Um, I've got commissioned by myself, uh, and uh, I'm recording the next one uh, for series two in the next few days, in fact. So um, a huge thanks to all of my guests, to all of you for listening, getting in touch, leaving reviews. If you've enjoyed the chat with Clive, uh, do go on, leave a few words of a review. I'll be really grateful. Um, the next series is going to feature, with a bit of luck because most of them have said yes we're just trying to sort out times and meeting points um voices from athletics boxing cricket football and rugby again um and a special live episode to come to at podcast live as i mentioned in the introduction please get your tickets booked for that it'll be a brilliant unique event bringing the rugby podcast together um q commentator will be there too with a special rugby commentator chat um and as for the rest of series two well i'm hoping you won't have to wait too long hopefully just two or three months time to have a few more in the bag they're busy people these well-known and brilliant voices of sport um so have a lovely start to your summer keep in touch with us on at q commentator on twitter with any suggested guests you'd like to hear from in future conversations. This has been a Rugby Media production. We'll see you soon. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.